she is looking for solace in a good place to vape, but what she finds is a journey of self-discovery. Again, that's Jump, every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from March 21st through April 13th at the Milagro Theater, 525 Southeast Stark Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBU Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Challenging the Both Sides Narrative, Difference Between Fascist and Antifa Movements in the Trump Era, on Thursday, April 4th from 7 to 9 p.m. at Cider Riot in Portland. Challenging the Both Sides Narrative is a talk by Dr. Stanislav Vysotsky. This talk will provide an overview of contemporary fascist and anti-fascist movements with a focus on the key differences between them. Again, that's Challenging the Both Sides Narrative, Difference Between Fascist and Antifa Movements in the Trump Era, on Thursday, April 4th from 7 to 9 p.m. at Cider Riot, 807 Northeast Cooch Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the home page under Community Events. You're listening to KBOO Portland. Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we have an in-depth conversation with cultural critic, professor, and author Henry Giraud. We focus on his book, American Nightmare, Facing the Challenge of Fascism. We discuss the reality of the dangerous moment we are in right now. The 45th President of the United States describes himself this way, quote, The beauty of me is that I am rich. He also says, you can never be too greedy. He describes black congresswoman Maxine Waters of having a low IQ and basketball player LeBron James as not very smart. CNN's black anchor Don Lemon, he calls the dumbest man on television. He referred to protesting NBA players as sons of bitches who don't belong in the United States. Trump also referred to immigrants and migrants from south of the border with these words. These aren't people. These are animals. All this as the Republican establishment remain largely silent. Donald Trump is an admirer of President Andrew Jackson, a slave owner who was renowned for his Native American removal policies that are likened to genocide. No surprise, as Trump and Andrew Jackson are both cut from the same white supremacist cloth. Why are so many accepting Trump, who has been described as a political weapon of mass destruction? What about the Orwellian side of the Trump administration? We can't forget the predictions George Orwell outlined in his book, 1984. What get what can we do about the state of things in the United States that is spreading venom around the world? And what does Henry Giraud mean by democracy and exile and historical falsification? And what about the politics of disposability and erasure of people of color as Trump strides forward with a make America white again? Well, I put the again really in parentheses. Henry Giraud outlines how we are in a life or death struggle. He integrates truths from James Baldwin, Frederick Douglass, and historian Robin Kelly in his work. 
We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. The House Judiciary Committee is meeting today to authorize subpoenas for special counsel Robert Mueller's full report on his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election and potential ties between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. The committee will also be moving to subpoena all underlying documents related to Mueller's findings. California Representative Jackie Speer told CNN the public has the right to know what's in the report. What is he afraid of is the question we should all be asking. This report belongs to the American people. It's their taxpayer dollars that went into the two-year investigation, and we will, one way or another, uh, find out what's in that report. Meanwhile, Nadler's committee will also vote to issue subpoenas for a variety of Trump associates. They include former White House counsel Don McGahn, former chief White House strategist Steve Bannon, former White House communications director Hope Hicks, former chief of staff Reince Priebus, and former White House counsel chief of staff Ann Donaldson. They're being subpoenaed as part of the Judiciary Committee's separate investigation into possible threats to the rule of law by the president. Federal agents say a woman carrying a Chinese passport and a device containing computer malware lied to gain admission to President Trump's Mar-a-Lago club over the weekend during his Florida visit. Court documents allege Yu Jing Zhang told a Secret Service agent Saturday she was a Mar-a-Lago member there to use the pool. Agents say a club manager thought Zhang was the daughter of a member and agents admitted her. Agents say Zhang's story changed inside, telling a receptionist she was there for a Chinese-American event. No such event was on the schedule. Agents were summoned, and they said Zhang began arguing during an interview. They say a thumb drive in her possession contained malware. She being held on charges of lying to agents and illegal entering. Her attorney has declined comment. Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders says his campaign has raised $18.2 million in the 41 days since he announced his 2020 bid. Campaign manager Faiz Shakir said Tuesday that it came from about 900,000 first quarter contributions. He says the average donation was $20 and Sanders' campaign has $28 million in cash. The senator from Vermont was expected to post the largest fundraising haul among the Democratic field. Sanders fueled his unsuccessful 2016 presidential campaign with grassroots giving. There was little surprise Sanders would have a strong first quarter. The latest results cement Sanders as a financial frontrunner in a field of more than a dozen candidates. British Prime Minister Theresa May and the leader of Britain's main opposition party were due to meet today for talks on ending the impasse over the country's departure from the EU. It's a surprise about face that left pro-Brexit members of May's Conservative Party howling with outrage. Brexit Secretary Stephen Barclay said the government was not setting preconditions for the talks with Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, but also said there will need to be a compromise. The exact timing of the meeting between May and Corbyn wasn't immediately specified, but it will probably take place this afternoon, UK time. After failing repeatedly to win Parliament's backing for her Brexit blueprint, May dramatically changed gear Tuesday, saying she would seek to delay Brexit and hold talks with the opposition to seek a compromise. A revised measure that would make it easier to build more apartment buildings near transit hubs has cleared a hurdle in the state legislature. And as Christopher Martinez reports, supporters of the bill are hoping this year's version passes. State Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco is taking another shot at making it easier to build multi-unit apartment buildings near transit hubs and job-rich areas as part of a strategy to address the state's housing crisis. He presented his Senate Bill 50 to the Senate Housing Committee. California, over the last 50 years, we have made it impossible to build enough housing for a growing state. We're, we're acting like we're still a state of 10 million people when we're a state of 40 million people Um, heading towards 50 million. The bill would lift height limits and other zoning rules for housing built near rail hubs and heavily used bus stops, as well as yet-to-be-defined jobs-rich areas, in order to create more housing while reducing commutes and pollution. But it also has some passionate opposition. 
The group Housing is a Human Right, part of the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, calls the measure a luxury housing real estate development bill. Other critics say it undermines democracy by taking away the power of local governments to zone their communities. The Health Committee approved the bill on a vote of 9 to 1. It goes next to the Government and Finance Committee. Reporting from the State Capitol, I'm Christopher Martinez. I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines, and I'd like to welcome our guest, uh, Henry Giraud, a cultural critic, writer, university professor, journalist, one of the founding theorists of critical pedagogy. He is best known for his pioneering work in public pedagogy, cultural studies, youth studies, higher education, media studies, and critical theory. Uh, He was named as one of the top 50 educational thinkers of the modern period. Mr. Giraud has published more than 60 books, 200 chapters, and 400 articles, and is published widely throughout education and cultural studies literature. And, um, well, I don't know how you're still standing with all of that behind you, Henry <laughs> Giraud. <laughs> you must be exhausted. I'm getting old. <laughs> Reminds me of how old I am. <laughs> I, I tell you. Well, um, American Nightmare, Facing the Challenge of, of Fascism. Uh, you talk about this being a fragile democracy. And I, I assume when you're saying American nightmare, you're referring to the United States, right? Yes, I am. Yes, a fragile democracy uh, facing populism and demagoguery. And also, the, you talk about the seduction of Trump. Let's start by addressing both of those. Well, I, I mean, I think that one of the things that we need to recognize, as you've so eloquently said in your in your introduction is that the United States basically uh, has moved into an enormously dark period. Um, it's a period of enormous crisis. It speaks to the failure of, of uh, democracy in the United States, and it speaks to a trend that has been going on, especially since the 1970s, in which it could be summed up as the organization of economic and political power in ways to basically uh, dismantle all the vestiges and institutions that make a democracy possible. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think this nightmare, uh, which has now become the uh, most important trope to overcome the American dream, could not have taken place. Uh, Trump would not have happened if these these various uh, fundamental forces had not been in place, economic, political, social, cultural, and economic. I mean, the, uh, the, the intensified racism, the dismantling of the welfare state, the rise of the incarceration state, a language of utter cruelty, an economic system divorced from any sense of social cost, the increasing massive inequality, the in a sense, ongoing depolitization that takes place through celebrity culture and the increasing control of the media by corporations increasingly dominated by right-wing voices, um, it, it, it speaks to basically the, the collapse of, of the kind of formative culture and the institutions needed to make a democracy possible. And it has given birth now to the Frankenstein monster, which is Trump. And Trump is basically completely unapologetic. He's completely out front about his racism. He's unhinged, it seems to me, when it comes to policies. He loves dictators, hates the Western alliance, uh, and and basically represents a, a form so distinctive and unbridled and unchecked in, 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 in the last 50, 50 to 60 years in American history that he's bamboozled the public. They They don't quite know how to name Trump. We, they don't have a language for Trump. They don't, they don't realize that fascism begins with language. It's the language of brutality, the language of racism, the language of hatred, the language of systemic violence. And Trump embodies all of those things. And so I, I, I think the book at one level is trying to chart both the history and the current conditions that have given rise to Trump, and also to talk in many ways about what, what Trump how, how this neoliberal, what I call neoliberal fascism, is actually working. I mean, how it tends to manifest itself. So, I think I think in that sense, 
I'm not just talking about you know a crisis of values. I mean, I'm talking about a crisis of politics, a crisis of agency, and a crisis of history. I mean, we live in a country in which we live in a culture of immediacy. History kind of fades away. I mean, increasingly, I listened to Don Lemon last night and others talking about you know, whether or not Trump is actually, I mean, accusing Trump, of course, of being a racist. But, I, but, I, but nobody wants to use the word fascism. I mean, nobody wants to say, hey, look, you know, white supremacy is central to fascism. Let's begin to recognize that. Let's begin to talk about what it means when you have language in the service of violence. What does it mean when civic culture is, un- is being eradicated under forms of extreme capitalism, when there's an erosion of any sense of shared citizenship, when everything is privatized, including the notion of freedom, when the media no longer has the opportunity to legitimate distinctions between fact and fiction, and language succumbs to the aesthetics of vulgarity and disposability. But it's particularly this notion of disposability that strikes me as, as so distinctive of the moment. I mean, the increasing numbers of groups, religious and ethnic groups, racial groups, who are now under attack in ways to suggest that they don't mirror what we would call the model of what it means to live in a Disney-like white America of the 1950s and six, early 60s. This is really dangerous. Yeah, and you know, one of the things, I mean, underscoring that uh, just recently it has come out that the Trump administration, um, with, in terms of the children who were taken, really, I think, right. kidnapped at, at the border, not only did they not have a single database for all the parents, but they referred to those separate. You articulated that as sharply as you did to those separated as deleted family units. And I was thinking of that as I I was reading uh, you talking about the politics of erasure. And uh, also, I'm of African descent in the diaspora, originally from the British colony of, of Barbados, and uh, but have, have been involved in Southern California with the serial murders of black women that referred to those colony of, of Barbados, and uh, but have, have been involved in Southern California with the serial murders of black women that's been going on for decades, up to perhaps 200 or more women killed or missing, similarly to what's going on in, in Canada with the Native American women. But it, it came out that the women were referred to as no human involved. So when I look at deleted family units, no human human involved, and your analysis about the politics of erasure, it really, you know, makes sense. It brings all this to bear. And, and, I, and I think that what's particularly interesting in that analysis is that there's also a language that precedes this. It's the language of dehumanization. Yeah. It's, a, it's the language of reification. It's the language of objectification, which is, in a, which is a language that, it, in, in its first instance, is a language of erasure. In its second instance, it's a language of disposability. And I think they're different. And, I, and I, it's, it's one thing to utterly dehumanize people, but it's a ne- another thing to be able to put children in cages, separate children from their parents, uh, speak to a law and order regime, that in a fundamental way is, is really speaks to increasing uh, the punishing state and the mass carceral state, which is basically a racial, racial-based system. I mean, I, I think all of those elements, we have to be careful because we have to connect these elements to make uh, uh, to have a broader understanding of the comprehensive politics at work here. That's why your comment is so incisive and so important. You know, you see women disappearing in Canada. You see women disappearing uh, in, in the United States, women who are marginalized by race and class. And all of a sudden, you know, you see these children sort of disappearing, you yeah. know, which, which always moves people because children are innocent. You know, it's difficult to say that they don't have any character or that they really want to be lazy or they really want to be, they enjoy being on the welfare rolls or whatever. But it, but it seems to me that, you know, this administration has taken that discourse of dehumanization, that discourse of objectification and reification so far, so over the top, that it's impossible to miss what its implications are in terms of its support for a white nationalist state. Because that's essentially what this fascism is about, right? I mean, Trump is a white nationalist. 
he believes that neo-Nazis basically are not bad people, even though they carry you know torches and march march through towns yelling that the the country should be rid of Jews and blacks. So it, it, it seems to me that the next question is what policies now follow from that, and how, what do those policies mean in terms of the beginning, uh, the, the the trial run of a fascist state. And I think the separation of children and the separate and the incarceration of people at the border is certainly a trial run. No yeah. question about that. And it's 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 how do you say it? It's resonance with echoes of the past. They're almost overwhelming. You had mentioned Margaret earlier, the language. The language in which he calls people immigrants animals. He refers to them as infested. You know, he he infecting, carrying viruses. I mean this is a language that comes right out of Nazi Germany. This is a, the language of disappearance that eventually becomes the language of genocide. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about your work, about about this book, because it really does underscore the sense of urgency that I know I feel, and I know that many people in our community, in black and brown communities, feel, because as a mother, a black mother or brown mother, you never know once your kid walks out the door, even to go to the corner store, if they're going to come back alive or not, or if they're going to be shot, right? No, it's, that's horrible. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it's, it, it makes... The notion of violence as an abstraction and indecency, meaning that violence now is so visceral in the way it affects communities, in the way it bears down on bodies, in the way in which law is transformed into lawlessness, in the way in which police violence is always rationalized in ways that make an injustice, uh, that make justice a mockery. It, it, it seems to me that when you can't walk into your neighborhood and without fear of being shot, when you can't drive a car without fear of being stopped and killed, when you can't and be involved in protests without legislation being initiated that's now saying that in some states protesters could be fined and charged with felonies, when you get a president who says who is being investigated by the Justice Department, who in turn is trying to fire the people who are investigating him, when you get a president who thinks that Dutate's drug laws, in which thousands of people have been killed without trials, are okay and are really cleaning up and addressing the drug problem, what you get central to this administration is something utterly frightening, and that is violence becomes the organizing principle around which social problems are being addressed. Yeah, but and that's that's the essence of fascism. Yeah, and and violence in the United States, and of also the United States being the the largest arms distributor, you know, around the world. Speaking of violence, but you know, I I recall that there was a, a period of time when uh, people from the United States would travel and there was the whole concept of the ugly American, right? Loud right. and brash and inconsiderate is usually, uh, you know, right, what right. it meant, at least in terms of where I come from uh, in the global South. But it does seem to me as though Trump is really an embodiment of all of that. I mean, there is you know, the talk of Trump being this kind of unique uh, figure in a way. But, uh, you know, for many of us who have felt, I should say, the whip of oppression uh, for, you know, for so long, he's an embodiment perhaps of, of some of the worst of those characteristics, but also having um, the, the, the gumption and the power to be able to just come out with it and not even cover it over. You know what I mean? And I wonder if that's part of what you mean in addition to all of that you have just described when you say that Trump is a political weapon of mass destruction. Well, you quote uh, Henry Aaron from Brookings who said that actually. Well, I, I, I think that in many ways there, there are two issues here. I think that at one level you know, to, to say he's a, a, a weapon of mass destruction is to emphasize how dangerous he is both at the domestic and international levels. I mean, this is a guy who basically insults people who have nuclear weapons, and we know what the potential consequences of that could mean, who's now going to potentially wage a war with Iran. Nobody knows where that's going, unfortunately. I, the other side of this is that he, he also engages in forms of domestic terrorism. I mean, he's now the state has now become a weaponized uh, uh, system of violence. And, and I, and I, but, I, but I think that the other side of this is that we can't forget that Trump couldn't do this without the support of his Vichy allies, mm -hmm. who, who now have given up 
any sense of moral and political responsibility in the interest of basically filling their pockets with as much money as possible because they're wedded to a form of extreme capitalism that is aligned very closely with the precepts of fascism. They create misery. They create inequality. Uh, they, they, people lose jobs. People are poor. Uh, people have no power. Politics is not run by money. All of these things basically undermine a body politic and allow a democracy to fail. And all fascisms basically emerge out of failed democracies. And so I, I, I think that you, what is so, so threatening and dangerous and horrifying about Trump is that he's not alone. I mean, he's got 25 to 30 percent of the population supporting him. He's got a Republican Party that is entirely in the in the hands of, of extremists, and we have a Democratic Party that would like to move to the more to the right some elements of that party in order to fight Trump. So we don't have a third party. I mean, we have instances of resistance all over the country, and it's fabulous, but they're not integrated. You know, we don't have a major third party, a democratic socialist party. And so it, it, it seems to me that when you put all these conditions together, it's the perfect storm for Trump, right. for Trump and his allies. Yeah, and, but because and, I don't, Margaret, I don't believe that if Trump loses, for instance, in 2020, that that's the end of it. You understand? I mean, I, I mean, the formative culture he's created, the policies he's created, the groups he's mobilized, the hatred that he's energized, the totalitarian language that he has sanctioned, it's not going to go away. It's deeply rooted in a culture that basically is moving more and more to, towards uh, uh, appropriating fascist impulses. Well, you are, have done a terrific uh, wake-up call uh, with this brand-new book, with your passion. I appreciate that appreciate the work that you've done we're out of time i can't believe how the hour has flown um it has been a pleasure um henry Giraud, his brand new book american nightmare facing the challenge of fascism thank you so much for joining us margaret thank you again for having me on thursday april 4th from 7 to 9 p.m at cider riot in portland challenging the both sides narrative Dr. Stanislav Vysotsky. This talk will provide an overview of contemporary fascist and anti-fascist movements with
You're listening to K-Boo Radio. <laughs> Good evening. You are listening to News from the Boo, the weekly news segment featuring news from in and around the K-Boo community. I'm your host, Mike Crenshaw. Tonight we have a very special guest, Malcolm Shabazz Hoover. Malcolm, what's up, man? Yo, peace and love, peace and love. From KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, the House Judiciary Committee on Wednesday morning voted to subpoena the special counsel's report on the 2016 election. The vote took place along party lines and now means that committee chairman Gerald Nadler will issue a subpoena to the Justice Department. Ahead of the vote, Republican committee member Jim Jordan insisted that Democrats only wanted to see the report because it didn't adhere to their expectations. Seems to me we're here because the Mueller report wasn't what the Democrats thought it was going to be. In fact, in fact, it was just the opposite. What did the Attorney General tell us that Mr. Mueller's, the principal finding of Mr. Mueller's report were? No new indictments, no sealed indictments, no collusion, no obstruction. On the Mr. question, Jordan, will, will the gentleman yield? When, I'll, I'll, well, I've, I only got a little bit of time because I only have yields. a short question. You, you made reference to the Mueller report. Have you seen it? Because we haven't. No, I've seen the principal findings from the Attorney General. That's Jim Jordan speaking on Wednesday morning ahead of the House Judiciary Committee vote on issuing a subpoena for the Mueller report. Chairman Nadler has said that he wants to allow Attorney General William Barr, quote, time to change his mind. But if we cannot reach an accommodation, then we will have no choice but to issue subpoenas for these materials. Another House committee on oversight and reform on Tuesday voted to subpoena a former White House personnel security division chief named Carl Klein. The subpoena was issued on the basis of testimony earlier this week by a whistleblower named Trisha Newbold, who is a career security staffer at the White House. Newbold urged lawmakers to examine the reversals of 25 security clearance decisions that Trump's team had made. And the House Oversight Committee on Tuesday also issued multiple subpoenas of Trump officials in the decision-making to add a citizenship question to the U.S. Census. The city of Chicago, Illinois, has a new mayor, and she's unlike anyone who's ever held that office. Lori Lightfoot won Tuesday's runoff race to become Chicago's first black female mayor, as well as the first openly gay person in that position. She defeated City Councilwoman Tony Preckwinkle in every ward in the city. Here is part of her victory speech. 
we can and will finally put the interests of our people, all of our people, ahead of the interests of a powerful few. Together, we can and will make Chicago a place where your zip code doesn't determine your destiny. That's Mayor-elect Lori Lightfoot speaking on Tuesday night after she won a historic runoff race to replace outgoing Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Among the issues that Lightfoot campaigned on was justice for the police killing of a young black teenager named Laquan McDonald. In Los Angeles, police confirm that they have taken into custody a suspect named Eric Holder in the shooting death of Grammy-nominated rapper and social justice activist Nipsey Hussle. Surveillance videos of the shooting are now making the rounds of news media. Hussle's killing has sent shockwaves throughout Southern California. He was integral in promoting black-owned businesses and community projects in South Los Angeles, where he grew up. In other news, President Trump is backing off from his decision to try to overturn the entire Affordable Care Act after Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell shot down the plan. McConnell said on Tuesday, I made it clear to him that we are not going to be doing that in the Senate. And he did say, as he later tweeted, that he accepted that and he would be developing a plan that he would take to the American people during the 2020 campaign. McConnell is also overseeing the changing of Senate rules this week that could help Republicans speed up Trump's judicial appointments. The so-called nuclear option may be invoked for only the third time in a decade, allowing for Republicans to use a simple majority to confirm lower court appointments instead of the usual two-thirds majority. The GOP has complained that Democrats are dragging their feet in confirming Trump's appointees, a claim that Democrats find laughable as they cite McConnell's blocking of President Obama's Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland. The Justice Department on Wednesday issued a report on conditions in Alabama prisons, saying in a letter to Governor Kay Ivey that they are unconstitutional. According to the letter, which was DOJ's, which was issued by DOJ's Civil Rights Division, investigators have, quote, reasonable cause to believe that Alabama routinely violates the constitutional rights of prisoners housed in the Alabama's prisons by failing to protect them from prisoner-on-prisoner violence and prisoner-on-prisoner sexual abuse and by failing to provide safe conditions. According to Associated Press, investigators reviewed more than 600 reported inmate-on-inmate sexual assaults from late 2016 through April 2018. As per the DOJ letter, they did not identify a single incident in which a correctional officer or other staff member observed or intervened. And that, quote, rapes happen day and night and in all corners of the prisons, including dormitories, cells, showers and recreation areas. Alabama now has 49 days to fix the problems or face federal prosecution. Also in Alabama, Republicans, apparently disregarding the treatment of actual living human beings in their prisons, are so concerned about the rights of fetal tissue inside women's bodies that they're now attempting to pass a ban on most abortions. If the bill, the so-called heartbeat bill, passes, Alabama will join the states of Georgia, Kentucky, and Oklahoma in passing bills where pregnant women will see their constitutional right to an abortion denied. The New York Times on Wednesday published a lengthy and explosive piece about the man who owns Fox News and a conglomeration of related media outlets the world over. The article, entitled How Rupert Murdoch's Empire of Influence Remade the World, is an in-depth look at a very private man whose ideological reshaping of the media has helped spread right-wing ideas the world over. The report is a culmination of six months of investigative research and 150 interviews from all over the world. According to a Times summary, the research examined how Mr. Murdoch and his feuding sons turned their media outlets into right-wing political influence machines that have destabilized democracy in North America, Europe and Australia. Republicans are warning Trump against closing the U.S.-Mexico border. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said this week closing down the border would have potentially catastrophic economic impact on our country, and I would hope we would not be doing that. And another high-ranking Republican, John Thune, said, It's part of the way he negotiates, but I'm not sure that's a particularly good idea, and I'm not sure it gets the desired result. Tactically, it doesn't get a result and probably has a lot of unintended consequences. 
And Senator Lindsey Graham added his voice to the chorus against a border closure, saying, you're taking a bad problem, and by closing the ports of entry, you're creating another problem. There are now reports that Trump is backing off from his threat. And finally, in international news, Algeria's President Abdelaziz Bouteflika has resigned after weeks of mass protests. The 82-year-old four-term president has been planning to run for a fifth term, but a major uprising that began as a student-led revolt appears to have forced him to back down. On Wednesday, the nation was filled with scenes of euphoria over the news of Bouteflika's resignation. The Algerian Constitutional Council met on Wednesday after more than 20 years to declare the president's seat vacant and usher in a process for new elections. And that does it for our headlines today. We'll be back with the rest of the show in just a moment. From KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. President Donald Trump has launched a seemingly inexplicable war on Puerto Rico. Having glommed down to false information about federal disaster funding, Trump on Monday tweeted, Puerto Rico got far more money than Texas and Florida combined, yet their government can't do anything right. The place is a mess. Nothing works. He said Puerto Rico got $91 billion for the hurricane, more money than has ever been gotten for a hurricane before. These are statements that he's reportedly made in private before as well. And in response, Puerto Rican leaders like Governor Ricardo Rosello have desperately tried to meet with Trump, particularly given that the U.S. colony has been forced to cut its food stamp program, which about a third of the population relies on. Trump has been actively avoiding Rosello and has inspired the governor to hit back, even threatening to, quote, punch the bully in the mouth. Earlier this week, the U.S. Senate voted down a bill to extend the food stamp program. My guest is Eric LeConte. He is the executive director of Jubilee USA. Welcome, Eric. It's great to be with you, Sonali. First, let's talk about some of these figures that Trump is touting and where he gets them from. Um, my understanding is that this figure of $91 billion is completely and utterly, entirely false. And it's based on, or some people surmise that it might be, he might be getting it from the fact that the total damage that uh, that uh, Puerto Rico suffered from hurricanes Irma and Maria amounted to about $91 billion. Can you make sense of this? Well, a lot of people have tried to explain where these numbers are coming from, from the president. And it seems clearly that it's a misunderstanding of what the damage was that took place in Puerto Rico against the actual aid that Puerto Rico has received for recovery and for rebuilding. So the total damage estimates uh, for Puerto Rico uh, range from 90 to $120 billion uh, as estimates of the damage that took place from the 2017 hurricanes Irma and Maria. In terms of what has passed so far uh, by congressional action, by White House action, roughly about $50 billion in aid has passed uh, for Puerto Rico in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Uh, but unfortunately, much of that aid hasn't been dispersed. Uh, the most reliable estimates around the amount of aid that Puerto Rico has received to date is probably around $14 billion. 
So they've been promised by Congress and the White House $50 billion, but we believe for the total recovery and rebuilding to take place for Puerto Rico to rebuild to withstand the next storm, we're looking at somewhere between $90 billion and $120 billion uh, that's needed for recovery for the island. So Trump is taking the damage that the island suffered, claiming that's how much it has already received, even though about half that has been appropriated and only a tiny fraction has actually been delivered. Um, I mean, uh, some there are some reports that uh, Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney is the one whispering these into his these figures into his ears. He's also said that Puerto Rico got far more money than Texas and Florida combined. Do you get the sense that he is sort of otherwise Puerto Rico, that this foreign place, this colony that, uh, you know, some members of his own administration has referred to as another country is uh, undeserving of aid, um, especially when compared to places that he considers important, like Texas and Florida. Well, unfortunately, uh, over the last few months, uh, we've seen a lot of misinformation be put out there around Puerto Rico. Uh, and unfortunately, some of that misinformation has come uh, from the president. Uh, the damage estimates uh, in terms of aid are, are clearly one of those issues. Uh, but I think we've also seen that Puerto Rico has kind of become uh, a bargaining chip uh, right now as Congress uh, is in a very unhealthy place in terms of working together. Puerto Rico has kind of become a bargaining chip to move forward proposals. Uh, just recently, we saw the White House talking about taking um, aid that was committed from Puerto Rico in order to uh, build or strengthen the border wall uh, that the president wants to build uh, in the south of the United States along the Mexican border. And of course, right now, what we've seen uh, is that uh, in the Senate, which is now responsible for passing uh, disaster relief legislation for Puerto Rico, Iowa, Nebraska, uh, North Carolina, Florida, Iowa, uh, that uh, this legislation that also includes Puerto Rico has been held up. Uh, and again, that's been around um, how much money uh, the island should receive. I think, unfortunately, a lot of Americans don't understand that people living in Puerto Rico, people born in Puerto Rico uh, are U.S. citizens. Uh, and even though as a U.S. territory, uh, they can't vote like Texas can in terms of an election, voting for a president, um, the citizens are American citizens. Uh, and when they board a $60 plane flight from San Juan to Orlando, when they get off the plane as American citizens, they can fully vote uh, for the president of the United States. So we're dealing, unfortunately, with the reality that a lot of us don't realize the 3.5 million people that live in Puerto Rico are actually citizens of the United States. But they don't have congressional representation that actually carries weight, right? There's one representative who's a non-voting member. So they can vote, but they literally don't have, similar to the uh, District of Columbia, do not have a, 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 any kind of federal congress congressional representation with teeth. That's right. They don't have a, a binding vote or a vote that counts when a congressional count is close. Uh, they're able to vote, but that vote, again, doesn't count um, when it really matters. Uh, the member of Congress representing Puerto Rico, the resident commissioner, uh, Jennifer Gonzalez, has done a very strong job representing her people. But uh, unfortunately, that's one of the issues with Puerto Rico, as well as other U.S. territories. Because of its political colonial status, it's kind of in a place of limbo. Uh, and we see that being a challenge right now as disaster aid needs to be allocated to the suffering people, the suffering Americans in the island. But we also see that as a challenge for all kinds of problems that come in front of Co uh, Puerto Rico, uh, from their debt crisis uh, to dealing with status issues. Because they're not a U.S. state or an independent country, because they're somewhere in between, they often don't have the tools that U.S. states have uh, in terms of requesting disaster aid or being able to deal with a financial crisis.
And is that also part of Trump's uh, misinformation that he is claiming that uh, Puerto Rico is going to take its disaster, um, uh, federal disaster aid, and put it towards its um, the the debt that it faced from before the hurricane? Well, and, and that's uh, that's certainly a real concern. Uh, unfortunately, Puerto Rico has been dealing with a severe financial crisis before the hurricanes hit. Uh, and that had to do with a lot of reasons. Um, the major reason that that we know Puerto Rico was suffering from a crisis is in the mid 2000s, uh, Congress didn't renew tax tax incentives for pharmaceuticals and corporations that were operating on the island. So almost overnight, 100,000 very high paying jobs left the island, um, immediately losing an important revenue base for the island. So since the mid-2000s, we saw the global financial crisis hit. We saw tourism um, be affected in all places of the Caribbean. Uh, so Puerto Rico kept on borrowing to try and keep itself out of a financial crisis. Uh, unfortunately, Puerto Rico uh, at that point and even now, 60% uh, of the kids, U.S. citizens, live in poverty in Puerto Rico. And one out of two people that live in Puerto Rico live in poverty. So we had this terrible financial crisis, and we also had several creditors and predatory hedge funds that were trying to take advantage of Puerto Rico's crisis. Mm. Uh, and then the hurricanes came in 2017. And this was after Congress uh, and President Obama had signed into law uh, a super bankruptcy process for the island. Um, the process had started to go in a place where it looked much of that debt was going to be cut. Uh, debt cuts uh, were looking to be at 80% of payments. But then when the hurricanes came in, Irma and Maria, Puerto Rico was then hit with a third hurricane. Uh, what happened is uh, after they were devastated uh, by these terrible hurricanes, by they, while they were already dealing with uh, austerity um, from the debt crisis, Puerto Rico now was trapped in a place um, where uh, not only was recovery becoming challenging, but because there was some new federal aid coming in and construction aid coming in, we saw um, the oversight board and the bankruptcy process start to look at paying creditors more money in debt deals. So where we've seen a lot of challenges from President Trump in terms of some of the information he's put out on Puerto Rico, uh, there is a concern that uh, as federal aid comes in, it could be more money to pay the creditors. Uh, with that said, I think some of President Trump's recent tweets and recent comments on Puerto Rico uh, have been directed at the problem of corruption uh, in the Puerto Rican government. Uh, and unfortunately, corruption's a problem in U.S. states. It's a problem uh, in Puerto Rico and one that our partners on the ground are gravely concerned about. With that said, it's important to note that the recovery aid and the rebuilding aid that's coming in from Congress is monitored um, in a highly structured process. So it doesn't really allow corruption or mismanagement in terms of recovery aid going for recovery or rebuilding aid going for rebuilding. Uh, but unfortunately, I think what we're seeing uh, is as Senate is debating disaster relief for a number of states and territories, uh, Puerto Rico is getting thrown on the table uh, in terms of how much aid uh, should go to the island. And it's become a big fight between Republicans, Democrats, and the White House. Right. Now, uh, I want to focus a little bit more on the food stamp issue. Um, I said about a third of the population currently relies on food stamps. Has that percentage increased since the hurricanes hit because of the hurricanes, because so much of the island's infrastructure has been devastated? And, and what is the current status of that program? So, so the food stamp program or the nutrition assistance program, which is um, the Puerto Rico territory version that U.S. states have of SNAP, uh, nutritional assistance program, the supplemental program, um, this program uh, does fund the most vulnerable people uh, in Puerto Rico in terms of being able to get basic access to food. Uh, after the hurricanes, we saw the program increased for several hundred thousand people. Unfortunately, because by March 1st, uh, the Senate hadn't reauthorized the program as the House did, funding ran out. 
So it meant that close to 1.5 million poor people living in Puerto Rico saw their food assistance benefits cut. Um, and so that's where we're at right now. The food benefits uh, were cut on March 1st. Um, so 1.5 million people have less to get by on them than they previously did. Uh, the Senate on Monday, in both of the packages that it failed to pass, would have continued the authorization for $600 million so that 1.5 million poor people in Puerto Rico could get access to food assistance. But unfortunately, now we're going on five weeks uh, where 1.5 million Americans have lost access uh, to vital food stamps on the island. So what does that mean? How are people coping? I understand that one of the things that's happening is that uh, the exodus that in a way began when the bankruptcy uh, crisis hit uh, Puerto Rico, the debt crisis hit, um, has continued and and has, has an even increased. And we're seeing large numbers of Puerto Ricans now making their way to Florida. That's right. Uh, unfortunately, with the Puerto Rico situation, we've seen uh, more than a million people leave the island in recent years. Uh, and that at first began as a result of the bankruptcy process. Already there were very high poverty uh, numbers on the island with 60% of kids living in poverty in Puerto Rico. But when austerity set in um, with problems uh, where Puerto Rico could no longer pay its debt, they closed 300 schools. Uh, they stopped emergency uh, medical care and medical facilities on the island. They laid off law enforcement and emergency personnel. So when the hurricanes hit in 2017, uh, because of the austerity that was already in place, uh, people didn't have an emergency response uh, on the island. But already hundreds of thousands of people were fleeing the island. And that was a real range of people from the poorest citizens who could buy uh, a $45 plane ticket to Miami uh, to uh, exodus of wealthy professionals, doctors, lawyers, surgeons, professionals um, who left the island in search of work. So we've seen an exodus continue, uh, first beginning with uh, the debt crisis, then becoming even worse after the hurricanes. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, as we see uh, aid uh, diminishing on the island, as we see aid not getting to the island, more and more people, Americans from Puerto Rico, are picking up their roots um, and setting them in the mainland United States. Some have warned that in his attacks on Puerto Rico, Trump risks losing the state of Florida in 2020, where he held a slim majority in 2016. Um, you know, not that that's a reason to care about Puerto Rico, but uh, it could certainly go come back to haunt him politically. Uh, is, uh, does he have the backing of many Republicans in his insistence on attacking Puerto Rico? Um, if, if the Senate votes are any indication, it seems as though the Republican Party is united in, with their president and writing off Puerto Ricans. Well, I, I think there are a, a lot of issues concerning uh, the upcoming elections uh, and the Puerto Rican vote, the Puerto Rica diaspora vote uh, is a very important vote. Uh, there are more Puerto Ricans at this point living outside of Puerto Rico than living in Puerto Rico. Oh, wow. So, so there are several very important key states that are swing states as well as states where uh, the Puerto Rican population has a huge voting sway. So that includes Florida. It includes Texas. Uh, Pennsylvania uh, as being places that are generally in play during presidential elections. Uh, it also includes New York and Illinois, uh, and we've seen Illinois in the Midwest becoming increasingly more in play. So the Puerto Rican population is very significant in the United States. Uh, I think when there has been misinformation from the White House on the number of deaths that took place in Puerto Rico as a result of the disasters or the amount of aid that's been dispersed. Uh, we've generally seen Republicans in these states put distance between themselves uh, and the president, where uh, they still want to work with the president on many issues, but they'll be very clear in public statements and tweets and social media uh, that they disagree um, with the president's statements on Puerto Rico. 
KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Challenging the Both Sides Narrative, Difference Between Fascist and Antifa Movements in the Trump Era, on Thursday, April 4th from 7 to 9 p.m. at Cider Riot in Portland. Challenging the Both Sides Narrative is a talk by Dr. Stanislav Vysotsky. This talk will provide an overview of contemporary fascist and anti-fascist movements with a focus on the key differences between them. Again, that's Challenging the Both Sides Narrative, Difference Between Fascist and Antifa Movements in the Trump Era, on Thursday, April 4th from 7 to 9 p.m. at Cider Riot, 807 Northeast Cooch Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the home page under Community Events. KBOO Portland. KBOO Community Radio starts our spring membership drive starting April 8th. And before that, we'd love to hear from you directly about why you support KBOO. My name is Mo, a KBOO volunteer, and I support KBOO because I grew up with KBOO. It's part of my life, and I feel having a community outlet like KBOO is so important because it creates a more vibrant community and a place where different ideas are not only heard but honored. Why do you support KBOO? Call us and let us know at 503-231-8032, extension 302, to leave a voicemail or tag us with your support on your social media posts. And thank you for supporting KBOO. 